Welcome to Mindfulness for the Soul, your daily dose of mental health insights, with your host, John Silimparis. Today we're going to talk about deconstructing the psychology of racism, a very tricky subject. Any attempt to summarize racism and the impact it has on the lives of individuals, families, neighborhoods, and cultures is bound to prove inadequate. But to begin a conversation about racism, it makes sense to at least try to define it. So broadly speaking, racism is a prejudice directed toward a specific group of people based on perceived differences. Now, why does racism exist? It's a good question. But there isn't one single reason. Instead, it's a confluence of influence. It's many different things. First off, science tells us that the earliest humans had central nervous systems that were predisposed to feelings of anxiety and distress when faced with those who were different. In prehistoric times, this factor helped to protect one's tribe from attacks by rival tribes. This early form of discrimination may have progressed into the practice of depriving other tribes who are different of resources such as food and shelter. So as groups oppressed and subjugated other groups, they began classifying them as inferior and lower status, even when there was no evidence whatsoever that could prove this was so. This may be where dominant groups began inaugurating the deeply prejudiced concept of being superior to other groups. Socially, negative stereotypes of minority groups based on fixed perceptions and biological differences are also a factor. In the United States, shameful stereotypes against blacks date back to the 17th century when the idea of racial domination organized around the xenophobic rationale of white supremacy. Minority groups were considered substandard based on false claims of unintelligence and moral inferiority. As a result, wealth and opportunity were all distributed along racial lines in which natural assets and the production of goods, as well as opportunities to gain wealth and social status, were all controlled by whites. This economic racism included Latinos, Asians, and other ethnicities also. Centuries later, we still see social inequalities persist from generations of structural disadvantages, especially in low socioeconomic areas where access to basic resources like housing and education are deprived. Remember, no one is born racist. Science has yet to discover a gene that predisposes individuals to hate and bigotry. These are learned behaviors and attitudes that are rooted in fear that have been passed along by individuals, families, and societies. Fear thrives on uncertainty and an imagined lack of control. Not having a handle on these two things causes an existential crisis that leads to emotional distress, but They are not an excuse as a result of that fear. In prehistoric times, it may have made sense or even been necessary to the survival of particular groups. But remember, these were pre-humans. 
what may once have been a survival tactic at a base level thousands of years ago is no argument for the elitist arrogance, oppression, and exploitation that denies human rights to others based on skin color or any other type of designation. Let's take a closer look though. The following psychological concepts could be in large part unconscious to many people, but nonetheless reprehensible. It's a fact that many human beings are oblivious to their psychological inner workings and unaware of what is motivating their thinking and subsequent behaviors. Some individuals can indeed be aware of their unconscious processes, but for many, making the unconscious conscious is too difficult a task. Achieving congruency by connecting the dots between their unconscious impulses and their actions takes work. It also means taking responsibility for their actions by holding themselves accountable to basic standards of human decency. However, whether conscious or unconscious, not taking that responsibility will always be inexcusable. When individuals are exposed to intense anxiety on a daily basis about the unavoidable trials and tribulations of life, such as divorce, unemployment, bankruptcy, chronic illness, fear of death, whatever insecurities they are experiencing, they may overcompensate for that fear and become more disposed to things like egocentricity, greed, and perhaps hostility towards other groups. They may temporarily lose their sense of humanity. Now, that same fear of losing everything in their lives, and perhaps the same fear of mortality, is somehow parked on unchecked, biased interpretations of the world and a convicted narrow-mindedness towards other people that are different than them. In short, fear not only begets intolerance, but outright stupidity as well. So here are a few examples of how fear operates on the mind. This is the psychology of racism. Number one is inadequacy. Inadequacy or low self-esteem, whatever you want to call it, is a reflection of poor ego strength and the lack of personal integration. It's when individuals possess a negative inner dialogue about themselves where they judge their self-worth only by achievement and status. So in the absence of self-compassion is instead a protracted tyranny of self-loathing. Over time, this kind of self-alienation can inspire anger and resentment against fellow humans and can skew the way they see the world and how they assess their future. If a person does not feel good about themselves and don't feel they have much to offer, then preying on others they feel superior to becomes easy pickings. It's a lazy form of therapy. It's akin to bully mentality, where dominance and power temporarily masks feelings of inadequacy. If individuals gain the one-up position against others they perceive as weak, they feel safer. And most importantly, they momentarily feel better about themselves. This is clearly a misguided intervention that has illusory short-term benefits with long-term destruction. Another one is called projection. Without even realizing it, individuals project their own deficiencies onto other groups as a strategy to evade accountability and blame. 
It's also a well-designed defense mechanism that helps to temporarily soothe the pain of inadequacy by irresponsibly transferring it onto others. Hence, people that are different become surrogate recipients of this self-imposed negativity. And interestingly, although projection allows individuals to allocate their suffering onto others, the things that individuals hate about others are usually the things they dislike about themselves. For example, if they perceive themselves as lazy with little to show for themselves, reassigning that perception is really easy. It's basically a cheap and easy way to let themselves off the hook. For example, they might think to themselves, you're more of a loser than I am, so maybe I'm not so awful after all. Another important psychological aspect about racism is a lack of emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence or emotional competence is the ability to manage emotions in the midst of stressful times. It's the integration of thoughts, feelings, and actions for the purposes of self-regulation. It seems that people with racist tendencies have a lack of this emotional intelligence. It's also the understanding of where emotional blind spots come from. These are very important. While we think the way we think and act the way we act is a critical life skill that many are too apathetic to learn about. For instance, individuals may then lean towards believing misconceptions that are not substantiated. This is called emotional reasoning. When people assume that their negative emotions, in this case fear, reflect the way things are. For example, I feel it, therefore it must be true. Maybe this is why people often blindly accept racist rhetoric and unspoken assumptions without examining the issues presented. Remember, thinking takes work and looking up the facts is sadly not always on people's agenda. The task is to try to connect feelings to the right context. I'm gonna say that again. The task is to try to connect feelings to the right context. Racist thinking does not do that. But many don't view the differences between humans through an emotional lens, but many also do as well. As mentioned, this emotional lens can be a bigoted one. Now, there are two different types of ways this happens. One is having a low threshold for distress tolerance. This is when an individual's threshold for distress tolerance is so low, they struggle to manage their feelings on a daily basis. Their baseline for distress tolerance is beneath normal, and they are more susceptible to the rigors of anxiety. Consequently, they will have more anxiety spikes than the average person. And number two, poor impulse control. This one's important too. Poor impulse control. This is when individuals are controlled by their emotions and have difficulty thinking things through before they act. As a result, they consistent, consistently make hasty decisions and jump to conclusions on a regular basis that does not serve them well. They flip their lids often and have no ability to stop and assess a situation in the moment. Hence, their reactivity makes them think in very negative ways and act in negative ways. Another category um, about the psychological reasons for racism is 
a sense of not belonging or a fear of insignificance. If a person feels insecure or lacking in identity, they may have a strong desire to affiliate themselves with a group in order to strengthen that anemic identity. Being part of something bigger than yourself and sharing a common cause with others of a group makes people feel less insignificant. If individuals feel alienated by their family, friends, or even by society, they end up never knowing what their place is in the world. Everybody needs to have a home base. However, we see that many people tend to lean the other way and choose false home bases that thrive on hatred. Another psychological aspect is all-or-nothing thinking. When individuals engage in all-or-nothing thinking, they evaluate themselves, people, and the world around them in extreme terms. It's another defense mechanism designed to protect them from the bad in the world. In this case, imagined bad or dangerous groups of people. All or nothing thinking requires individuals to split people into two unrealistic categories. Life can appear to be easier to survive if they can make sense of it with a dualistic eye. Two categories are easier to choose from than the confusion of many categories and the likely gray areas that open up too much possibility to be wrong. See, when people are afraid, they don't want to be wrong. If they're afraid of people, they don't want to be wrong because they want to be safe. Hence, their opinions of people are skewed because they have to narrow down their scope of perception. This causes ignorance. An example is all individuals, let's say all black people, are inferior or dangerous, or all politicians are crooks. The truth is there are immoral people found in all races and there are untrustworthy people found in all walks of life. To be fair, some politicians are indeed crooked and dishonest, but to conclude that all of them are based on that crooked few is not only irrational, but incorrect. And the same goes for putting blacks, Latinos, Asians, any group that you fear in that same kind of dualistic category. So to sum it up, racism can be seen as a synthesis of many learned behaviors that have been passed down from generations. But whatever we learn can be unlearned. This is important. Whatever we learn, we can unlearn. It starts in the home, with parents especially. Whatever parents tell their children, whatever beliefs they share with their children, are logically absorbed and assumed by the children. It's a common fact. But it will also require a collective convergence of world leaders, policymakers, education commissioners, law enforcement officials, religious communities of all faiths, etc. We can learn to teach kids the value of diversity and we can educate them on the benefits of tolerance. The recent escalation of the Black Lives Matter movement is not an anomaly. Past history has shown us that no major societal, political, or cultural change has ever occurred without the kind of impassioned uprising that we have seen of late. Revolution is evolution. 
It's America learning, transforming, and still growing as a nation. It's what's supposed to happen. Adaptation and the ability to change as we know is the only true formula for long-term survival. So remember, revolution is evolution. The sad part of it all is why it's taking so long. The countless innocent people that needed to die for government leaders and lawmakers to open their eyes is tragic. In 2020, George Floyd's death opened a few eyes. Let's hope they stay open. In the meantime, people can take action. They can take action to help bring about change in our society and to open up new dialogues about race in America. The active protesting we are seeing today is clearly shifting public opinion, but so much more needs to happen. It's just the beginning. So if every white American commits individually and collectively to altering their behavior and hopefully their attitudes on a daily basis, the change we speak about could happen faster. So here are a few suggestions we can all implement immediately. Number one, flip the script. Everyone is capable of learning new things. So look to people who are different from you as a potential consultant or a teacher. They can probably offer insights that you haven't considered. In other words, flip your script and look for ways to learn from others instead of fearing others. You are never too old to assimilate new information. Remember, to grow wise, one must always remain a student. Number two, exposure. Get out of your backyard. If you have lived most of your life with minimal or no exposure to other races and ethnicities, and you have not traveled outside that comfort zone, you may feel apprehensive about people whose skin color doesn't match yours. This can be just as true for those who hail from big cities as it is for those from smaller cities and towns. So check yourselves, New Yorkers and Los Angelinos. You're just as susceptible to racism as anybody else. The question is, are you willing to look past your current beliefs, thoughts, and feelings about race? Don't assume there isn't room for vast improvement just because you regard yourself as highly evolved or highly intelligent. Also, stepping out of that comfort zone means educating yourself about other cultures, educating yourself about their history, their struggles, their aspirations. In other words, get out of your backyard, folks. Exposure will help you expand your personal horizons and deepen your understanding of all people. Another one is be your own therapist. Wake up a little bit. Awareness of our thoughts and feelings is the first step in challenging them. So turn off your automatic pilot. For many of us, this is going to take practice. Whenever you feel upset, initiate self-regulation skills by accessing your rational mind. Make the, distinguish, make the distinction between your rational mind and your emotional mind. For example, if you feel afraid of someone, pull back from the situation and take a moment. Then practice impulse control techniques by responding with a more reflective mind than a reactive one. 
And most importantly, practice acceptance of other people. Acceptance raises our threshold for distress tolerance and lowers our innate reflex to draw hasty conclusions about others. Always examine your fixed beliefs and challenge them. Be aware that thoughts and feelings about race are probably passed down from your parents without your awareness or consent. Voices other than your own, sorry, voices other than our own program, sorry, voices other than our own program us from an early age to react when we encounter someone of another race or faith. And lastly, speak up and hold each other accountable. When you hear someone use disparaging language against another race or making jokes about race, remind them that this language and accompanying behavior is always unacceptable to you. If the person persists, have the conviction to walk away regardless of the stakes. The more we collectively call others out on their conscious or unconscious racial profiling, the more we may see, see things begin to change for the better. Also, there's further action you can take too. There are many articles out there that offer links to organizations that you can choose to donate to. There's an article in the New York Times Magazine that's called 142 Places and Funds to Donate on Black Lives Matter. If you're looking to get involved outside of organizing in person, there's a list of ways you can take action from home, including ideas specific to addressing racism in general, from contacting state and local leaders like mayors and governor's offices, to signing petitions, supporting black owned businesses, following and amplifying voices of diversity on social media, voting, volunteering, educating yourself, and many more. Phone numbers and email addresses are provided. There's an article on USA Today called 100 Different Ways You Can Take Action Against Racism Right Now. So I hope this was helpful to all of you in understanding the psychology of racism, because I believe that a lot of it stems from that. Thanks for listening to another episode of Mindfulness for the Soul. I hope all of you are well and safe and taking good care of yourselves. Take care. My name is John Salamparis, MFT.